Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Um, thanks so much for the invitation, firstly, and for having me here today. Um, when Ian kind of gave me carte blanche for presenting some research up here, I thought I'd present this latest work I'm doing on North Korea. For the past two years, I've been mostly researching and talking about Australian foreign policy and public opinion, which is my other kind of area, and which I love. But um, I've also been kind of in the background working on this project and coming kind of towards the end of our first set of findings. So I thought this was a great opportunity to talk about it. Um, my background when it comes to North Korea is, for, for longer than I'd like to admit, I've been looking at the Transnational Human Rights Network. So I've, I've been interested in, you know, how do these actors and why do these actors try to promote change in North Korea? How do they do so in the context of this really opaque, difficult state? Um, and how do they do so in an international environment whereby most states would prefer just to focus all their energies on North Korea's nuclear program and this kind of existential threat that it poses and human rights is an unwelcome distraction. Um, I'm also interested kind of on the side of and my first book and my PhD long ago was on this, was on um, in South Korea the kind of what this looks like in South Korea because in the context of the democracy movement and the um, anti-right-wing democracy movement and human rights movement, it took on a different nature and that's, I think, really fascinating. But when it comes to North Korea and human rights, it's so ideologically loaded that the micro-politics is really interesting. So I've always been interested in kind of how do actors in this space negotiate norms, negotiate um, the space. And one of the things that's always been at the back of my mind to look at is how the human rights um, actors interact with humanitarian actors. And the answer for a long time, and the answer still for most part, is, well, they don't interact at all. I don't have any contacts in the humanitarian space because they won't talk to me, because it's seen as too dangerous. Um, North Korea has been known to kick humanitarian NGOs out of the country for even going to meetings with human rights actors, and even though I'm not a human rights advocate and don't take a position, obviously, you Google my name, you find human rights. It's not a very good look for them. Um, and then... But I have noticed that since the Commission Inquiry report into North Korean human rights came out in 2014, and this issue was put squarely on the international agenda, so countries uh, can no longer say that it's not something they need to worry about. And this is particularly the case in, in South Korea, where even under a left-wing government, which wanted to focus on unification and say, you know, and I've ha I had before, you know, in the early mid-2000s, people say to me in South Korea from government, you know, this is a sovereign issue for North Korea, it's not something we should worry about. No longer can, say, can they say this. So we're starting to see the human rights space, I think, open up in a really interesting way and start to say, OK, how can we talk about human rights in a way that is perhaps more inclusive of a wider range of rights? And this is paralleled, of course, with what's happening at the UN um, Human Rights Council particularly with the exit of the US under Trump and the entrance of China and this effort to move more towards economic, cultural and social rights on that agenda. So bringing to that space then the question of disability, which I'll come to, I started talking to my colleague Nazanin Zadeh Cummings, who's also a deacon, and she has come from the other side. So her networks and her research is in the humanitarian space. She wrote her PhD on how humanitarians navigate a humanitarian space in a really complex context like North Korea. And she now trains up um, humanitarian uh, professionals, mostly. And so we both kind of came at this. We're, we're both interested in human security in North Korea, broadly defined, but come at it from very different angles. And so this is kind of the genesis of, of this project. Um, so 
for some context with disability rights, in 2017, in May 2017, um, the UN Special Rapporteur, Catalina de Vandes Aguila, um, who's the woman in the middle there, she landed in Pyongyang, and she is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So this, is, this was quite an extraordinary occasion. Not only is it the first time a um, Special Rapporteur has been allowed access to North Korea, it's actually the first time that they've even acknowledged that the UN Human Rights Council exists as a body they might want to interact with. You know, in the past, they, and they still do, um, except for this particular instance, deny the legitimacy of the Human Rights Council, deny the legitimacy of any of its efforts um, to, um, to try and understand what's happening inside the country. They refuse access to all experts from the UN or the US or South Korea to monitor human rights conditions. Um, this is even the case on issues that are considered a bit more progressive in North Korea, like women's rights and children's rights. They still won't interact or let, allow special rapporteurs in. And they usually accuse the UN and the UN international community in general of using human rights as a political tool um, to undermine the legitimacy of its sovereign government. But on disability rights, for some reason, North Korea has shown itself more open to aligning itself with uh, international norms, even allowing some degree of accountability. It's had to do this, you know, the broader context of this is that through the universal periodic review process, North Korean officials have discovered that no longer can they just kind of say nothing. They have to say something. They have to present something. And so perhaps this is why. Perhaps they say, OK, maybe we can talk about disability rights. Um, but this still has been a surprise to the international community, and particularly those non-state actors that have been trying to get North Korea to better align its treatment of its population with international standards. So this brings us to um, the, what I argue is a cleavage between the human rights and humanitarian sectors. Now, the very question of whether this cleavage exists became a really big problem for us in this particular article that we've still got under review. It's been under review for quite a while now, um, and hopefully towards the end of it now, because one of our reviewers denied that this cleavage exists, which I think is surprising because it's quite clear that human rights actors and humanitarian actors don't talk to each other. There's a cleavage. Um, I think that most people agree with that. Most people who work in this space agree with it. There are exceptions on either side. There are those on um, the human rights side who take extreme views and say that humanitarians, um, that there's not really a cleavage. They do work together, but humanitarians, they kind of reject it altogether and say humanitarians um, are propping up the North Korean regime. And I think that leads to those on the other side of the spectrum, what we might call the far left side of the spectrum, who say, well, human rights is just a tool used, a kind of imperial neocolonial tool used to undermine, um, used as a stick on North Korea. But there's no cleavage. We actually do. Like, we in the humanitarian sector, we talk about human rights. Um, however, in reality, the practicality of it is that they haven't been able to. And so there's this ethical dilemma that faces human-focused actors in North Korea, which is kind of how I think about all these actors. They're all actors who are interested in bringing about change um, in the human security conditions, whether that's um, the humanitarian space or the human rights space. So they have to kind of answer this question, is it better to stay silent, to have some degree of access to North Korean people and work with the regime, um, or is it better to learn about the conditions that are taking place inside North Korea from the outside and speak out against the regime? And so humanitarians obviously tend to engage with local authorities. They stay, they stay silent on civil, civil and political issues. And this is an approach that's necessary for them to continue what they see as their life-saving work with um, vulnerable populations. 
there have been exceptions to this over time. Doctors Without Borders has at different times, you know, this obviously aligns with their ethos of speaking out of témoignage. They have taken um, opportunities to speak out and have left the country and gone back in. Um, and I've actually kind of lost track of where they're at with that right now. Um, but, you know, so they're there doing food security work, important nutrition work, health and medical care. There's lots of uh, education projects. So they're doing work both through material inputs but also with cl through collaborative projects with um, North Korean counterparts. Rights groups, on the other hand, they're trying to get us all to talk about the human rights situation inside North Korea. They're trying to say, we can't ignore what's going on inside North Korea. If we really want to improve conditions for people inside North Korea, we can't accept that a price we have to pay for engaging with North Korea is not talking about human rights because we actually have no access to the population inside North Korea and we need to talk about it. We want, we want accountability. I think it's important to care about the fact that human rights actors and humanitarian actors don't talk to each other because if we want to understand the full gamut of human security issues inside North Korea, if we want to understand whether or not North Korea is holding up its bargain as a sovereign state, is, is kind of carrying out its sovereign responsibility to not commit war crimes or allow war crimes to be committed against its people. So the four worst kind, is there a genocide? Are there war crimes? Are there crimes against humanity? Which is what the UN suspects taking, taking place inside North Korea. Then we need to get these two sets of actors working together in some way or at least it would help us um, understand it better. So one explanation, and I think the most persuasive and probably the correct explanation for um, why these two approaches don't ever meet, so why human rights actors and humanitarian actors will never even sit at a table together. Um, so in Seoul, if there's a humanitarian conference, they won't want human rights actors to be there. And if there's a human rights conference, they will always ask humanitarian workers to come and they will not come. Once one of the German foundations went along and then they lost their access to North Korea. It's quite bad. So that's the, the main explanation. It's this kind of inevitable byproduct of dealing with this sensitive context, um, context. But we also see that when we look at disability rights, actually we have to interrogate this argument that it's an, an inevitable byproduct of dealing with North Korea because we see that human rights and humanitarian actors while they're not talking to each other, they're actually talking about the same thing. And we haven't seen this before. Certainly I haven't seen it in my work. They're all striving to change the way North Korea treats the people within its country, people with disabilities, and they're, they're all trying to encourage greater transparency and greater accountability. And they're all recognising that this is a complex space whereby uh, it's not just a matter of civil and political rights, it's a matter also of access to healthcare, perhaps access to education. So there's kind of something giving on both sides here. But what is it then about this issue that's allowed it to gain traction across the human rights and humanitarian divide? When we're trying to work out how the questions we're going to ask in this project, we wanted to avoid using disability rights as a convenient kind of variable because that didn't seem very ethical to us, but that was really what we were interested in. So then we had to really go and, and think carefully about what we wanted to understand. So I think trying to understand better the issue of disability in North Korea uh, was the way we decided to approach it. And so in our interviews, we didn't ask questions about what is it about disability that allows you to do this work in North Korea. We were asking questions about um, what kind of work are you doing in the disability space? What kind of change do you hope to see? So we were trying to better understand actually how these groups think about um, disability issues in North Korea. And I think that that's given us some 
I'm obviously biased, but I think it's given us some interesting um, uh, findings. So I'll quickly go through our method um, and some of the things we found. So we did interviews. I was very fortunate to um, go on um, sabbaticals, go do a month of interviews in Seoul in November 2019. Um, and so I got there just before we were never allowed to travel again and my colleague did her interviews over the phone in 2020 and we did about 8 to 10 interviews over this time which doesn't sound like a lot but in this space that's a lot of interviews um, because it's such a sensitive topic and there are so few actors really working in this space and it was about divided between the humanitarian and human rights space. Um, and that's many, many hours of interviews in there. And we analysed those interviews, um, we used um, a software, and we mapped out all the themes we found, then we remapped those themes. And so what we came up with were the ideas that were the most prominent through the interviews. We threw the human rights humanitarian interviews all into the same pool. We didn't distinguish between them because we wanted to understand across the board how do all of these actors talk, um, rather than trying to find differences. We were trying to find commonalities. Um, and we found that there, are, there certainly are some ideas that come across. So the first is that actors, these, these actors, whether humanitarian actors or human rights activists, talked about um, this issue of how do we understand North Korea. So in this theme, we found two categories. We coded all the data against two categories. The first was North Korea's exception. So this refers really to this idea or this intimation that when it comes to North Korea, the normal rules don't apply because it's this exceptional state, it's state that's almost completely cut off from the rest of the world. And I feel like I need to pause. I mean, I'm sure everyone in this room knows this, but it really is cut off from the rest of the world. So people in North Korea don't have access to the internet. It's not, this is not kind of East Berlin. This is um, another case altogether. Um, people in, there, there, is, there is no genuine interaction between the outside world and North Korea, there, and there's no civil society as we would understand it. Um, so it's seen as an exceptional state, it's immune to the pressures of international society, how, how can we possibly do anything about it? And this is related to, but also I think distinct from, this idea of lack of shared meanings, which um, includes references to the way this isolation affects how people inside North Korea think and talk about disability. Uh, we hear this a lot. I've done, um, I've worked with a lot of people doing really interesting work on human rights norms, so localization of human rights norms inside North Korea, saying there's no language, there's no shared language with North Koreans. So it's very, how can we hope to have change if we keep talking about human rights the way the UN talks about human rights? We need to have a more localized approach. Um, and I think that's really important. And that's also the case of disability rights. But it also refers to the lack of shared meanings between human rights and humanitarian actors. That, that also came out there. So oh, across the board, there's, there's, a, there's a communication problem. And then the second theme was this goal of achieving meaningful change. Um, it came up all the time. And there were two categories inside that. So the first of these is humanity. This recognition that at the heart of international efforts to improve the lives of North Koreans, lies a recognition of a shared humanity. This is an idea that's very familiar to the humanitarian sector. It's the humanitarian imperative has humanity as one of its four most important principles, along with independence. Um, and now I can't remember them, but there's four, and I just taught them last week to my students. Independence, autonomy, you all know. In any case, this idea that we all share a humanity and that no matter your ideological, or political, or cultural, or religious affiliations, material medical aid should be provided to everyone. That's also an idea that's shared with human rights actors as well. 
Then the last idea, the last category, was the most prominent by far across all of our eight accounts. Um, this was this idea that achievements in the disability space represent small steps towards larger goals, with these larger goals focusing specifically on issues impacting North Koreans with disabilities or relating to broader issues around North Korean security. And it came up all the time and in every single interview, this, um, this idea that people always talk about. Um, how this might not seem like a lot, but it's actually a step towards this, and we've never seen this before. And that will come into focus a little bit more later. So I'll just give you some examples of some snippets from our interviews. Um, so the first theme, this, um, this particular quote was from somebody actually in the human rights space, and although we don't identify it like that in our article, they were talking about US policy makers, actually, and talking about how it continually shocks them that people who are making decisions about how to approach human rights issues have never met a North Korean person. Um, just, you know, and then kind of there's a, there's a dig here at the people who do satellite research at North Korea saying these are just looking at them from space, um, which is absolutely true. Um, and I think that's also probably uh, a dig at the um, nuclear security space because, you know, a lot of their work is it's really important work. It's um, on open um, intelligence research, but it's all looking at kind of it's this geospatial mapping satellite imagery stuff. And then a second quote, it's quite a long one, and this is from someone who has a really long history working um, inside North Korea and collaborating with North Koreans and kind of trying to understand some of these lack of shared meanings and saying, look, we, don't, we can't assume that our priorities are ever going to be the same. So she's saying, well, this person is saying, um, you know, actually in North Korea they could have lower class ratios and that would really help them with a lot of these issues around access to school because they don't pay, they don't pay their teachers. So why not just have smaller classes? And they're like, but it's not actually about economic incentive here. It's about the contribution you as a person make to society in a country like North Korea. So that's the part I've highlighted here. They're like, well, I get the feeling that no one ever says this to me, but they're saying our contribution to the country isn't economic. It's actually more meaningful. We have to go out in the fields and plant crops. So we can't have smaller class sizes because that fewer people are going to be growing food. Um, so these are just, there were lots of things like this talking about how there's this lack of shared meaning with North Korea. And then achieving meaningful change. Um, this was one um, actor who was trying to talk about, I think I, I asked, well, one of us asked, I can't actually remember which side of who, who this was, but one of us asked, well, why do you think it is that North Korea is showing itself open to kind of talking about disability rights, allowing the special rapporteur? They were saying, well, maybe it's just that because it's not seen as an existential threat to them and we can talk about all these great things we're doing and we can get help from the international community. So this was a very much, a, like, this is a transactional kind of sceptical view. Um, this person as well saying, well, you know, there's a spillover effect, right? Surely there's got to be a spillover effect. We have exchanges and discussions about rights in, and international norms and maybe there'll be a spillover into others. But then they're like, well, I'm, I'm hoping actually because I don't actually think that that means, oh, now North Korea is so much more progressive and they're more tolerant and this is a much better country. Oh, I'm sceptical about this. And I just found this a good quote because this, I remember very clearly this interview and they were started off so positive and then were like, oh, it's probably not true. And then um, this was another one. So this was actually from a what our only identified source um, because this was a very long, this is a very um, narrative um, account that was written by a woman called Joy Yoon, um, a Korean American who worked um, inside North Korea for many, many years providing 
um, support to people with, med with cerebral palsy and set up schools. And so she talks a lot about the changes. It was a really interesting account. So we included that in our accounts because it was so hard to get humanitarians to talk to us. We wanted to balance it off. They just, even Nazanin, being familiar with these networks and them having interviewed, allowed her to interview them in depth before, they were still very reluctant because the word rights was in our ethics clearance. They didn't want to talk about it uh, in case they got kicked out of the country. So this one was really interesting because there was a, um, a kind of a really in-depth discussion about how one child, one doctor at a time, we're seeing um, kind of social attitudes change, but this is coming from the top. All right, so what do we do with this? What we decided, ended up doing, was trying to understand how disability studies literature um, talks about disability. Uh, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily interdisciplinary um, field. I don't know if anyone is familiar with this field, but it's fascinating. Um, it's probably one of the few genuinely interdisciplinary spaces. And there's a lot of different models, but this is the way we conceptualised it, kind of as international relations people. And so what we were trying to do here was understand um, why an overlap exists. So our research and our data kind of told us that actually there are important commonalities in the way actors' um, perception of the efforts to improve the lives of North Koreans with disability um, talk about things. So to understand this overlap, we turn to this scholarship, um, which got, gives you, you a range of models for conceptualising disability. They provided us a framework for understanding where, how and why human rights and humanitarian actors and approaches to disability issues in North Korea intersect in what we call in scope and also in purpose. So we, we've chosen here the medical model, um, and hopefully your eyesight's better than mine, medical model, social model and human rights model. So the medical model uh, is the one that everyone is probably familiar with. It's this idea that we're trying to overcome in most societies around the world that disability is seen as a medical condition and you try to fix people so that they can better interact with society. So they're the problem, their disability is an impairment and that needs to be um, fixed through um, whether it's um, through prosthetic limbs or through mental health treatments. This is, a, this is a difficult model to apply in the North Korean case, even though one might think it's straightforward and the least controversial, because for everyone in North Korea, access to medical care is so, is so limited. Uh, when it comes to people with disability, we just don't know how many people there are. Diagnostic tools are almost non-existent particularly for mental health conditions. If, if, you, if you don't have a physical obvious disability, I mean, autism and Down syndrome are only just starting to be recognised. Uh, it's very rare to see a kid with Down syndrome in North Korea. Um, I mean, even in South Korea over the last 20 years, I've suddenly seen children with Down syndrome on the streets, and back 20 years ago you didn't. This is just, it's partly just a cultural change. Um, and then the social model is the model that I think we're all probably most familiar with in the way we live our everyday lives. Because in a country like Australia, we work in institutions and we live in a society where there's the capacity for social norms to change. And so we've all, we all make reasonable adjustments for our students with disabilities, right? Whether that's making sure our lecture theatres are accessible or making sure um, we're providing captions for our lectures. It's this idea that actually the impairment and the barriers that persons with disabilities face are not the result uh, that their disability isn't the problem, society is the problem because it's not providing an equitable uh, experience for everyone. And so the way you overcome this is by changing social norms and practices. Um, and then there's the human rights model, which I'll come to in a moment. So the social model provides, when it comes to North Korea, a more encompassing model than the medical 
model for understanding the factors that um, turn impairments into to disability and the responsibility of society. But it actually provides... We, we, I should backtrack and say we did, in our, first, um, in our first coding of our data, we coded all implicit mentions of these models and we found no... We found one or two references to the medical model no references really to the social model, maybe one or two, and a lot of references to the human rights model, which we found very surprising. Um, so the social model, when we looked into critiques of the social model, when we, looked into understand, when we looked into understanding the social model better, we could see that it actually it didn't provide any kind of conceptual opportunity for human rights and humanitarian work to intersect because it kind of reinforces the dichotomy of working inside and outside the country, that you can only create change if you're inside the country, but if you're inside the country you can't create change because you will get kicked out. And so the only way you can talk about social norms and social barriers is by being outside the country. So it really kind of reinforces this problematic dichotomy um, of getting approval from the regime. Plus, since North Korean society has very few, I would argue, no avenues for pushing for the kinds of kind of social normative change that's required. It's just so limited. And I think these limitations, we didn't include here um, critical approaches to disability because they were very, very limited when it came to North Korea. But I think when it comes to critical, um, critical analysis of the social model, there's this one um, criticism that, that comes out that really kind of I think strikes true is that the social model of disability it was developed in the UK by persons with disabilities in the UK by sociologists and they say it doesn't account for the subcultures in which people with disability live and actually every country is going to need a different approach to overcoming um, these problems. You I mean you, you hear these same, same arguments when it comes to women's rights and to queer rights as well. It's the same, the same argument but that's so limited when it comes to North Korea because you have no access to the local population. So you can't actually understand how people in North Korea are thinking and talking about disability because you have no access to it. So even though it's, I think, um, a really helpful way to think about disability in most contexts, in North Korea it's not helpful at all. And that goes back to our problem of North Korea being, being an exceptional state. Um, and so, and that's also, I should add, why most critical accounts of human rights in North Korea end up taking this kind of um, line that human rights approaches are um, neo-colonial neo uh, and imperialistic because it's very hard to, to find other ways to critique the, the models. And then the human rights model. I think the human rights model's name is in some ways a red herring because it points obviously to an alignment with international human rights advocacy. It is promoted by those disability scholars who helped to draft the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, and it really in this way probably seems like an unlikely candidate for a model capable of explaining how and why humanitarians intersect with um, human rights activists. But it's actually built on the idea that persons with disabilities, like other people, are inherent holders of human rights by virtue of humanity. And this central idea at the heart of the human rights model, I think, really helps us to understand where the overlap is. The human rights model also emphasises the indivis indivisibility of the rights. So even though that's quite obvious, in practice that's not always the case. So to conclude, um, this, this, this first research article in this kind of re bigger research project was trying to kind of provide some conceptual basis on which to understand what's going on when it comes to disability rights. 
And even though the nature of the North Korean regime has resulted in what continue to be two separate systems for international responses to the threats to the humanities of North Koreans, um, the human rights model of disabilities does emphasise the ways in which all the rights are interconnected. And so we can see humanitarian aid and human rights approaches um, as expressions of humanity kind of working on these parallel tracks towards the same goal. The human rights model's roots in humanity and the indivisibility rights kind of provides this conceptual linkage. And so while um, the humanitarian sector will likely continue to um, avoid explicitly associating itself with the human rights movement for its own survival, um, there's actually a lot to be gained from actors learning to speak and talk about the issues that concern them, like disability rights, like food security, like women's rights, with a common language underpinned by this idea of the interconnectedness of rights in the same way the disability model has shown is possible. I think it opens possibilities for work on parallel tracks, for new understandings, um, for transnational solidarity, if we're going to be really hopeful. Um, and so I think I'll finish there. Thanks. Thanks so much, For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.